Data science is one of the fastest growing segments of software development, but it takes a slightly different set of skills than your average full-stack development job. This means there's a big opportunity to get into data science, but how do you do it? How do you get into the industry? Well, that's what Hugo Brown Anderson is here to tell us all about. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 139, recorded November 7th, 2017. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python, the language, the libraries, the ecosystem, and the personalities. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy. Keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm and follow the show on Twitter via at talkpython. This episode has been sponsored by Rollbar and GoCD. Thank them both for supporting the podcast by checking out what they're offering during their segments. Hugo, welcome to Talk Python. Thanks, Michael. Great yeah, to be on the show. It's fabulous to have you here. Um, it's, I think it's time that we do a, a dive into how people become data scientists and how they get into data science. And really, I've done a couple of shows on becoming programmers, but that's not exactly the same thing as becoming a data scientist in, in the sense. So I'm super excited to talk to you about all these different paths into data science and how people can kind of level up in, in that space. I'm really excited also because I've been thinking about this a lot lately, of course. Yeah, of course. It's, it's a really important topic. I mean, data science, I really attribute Python's meteoric growth over the last three years to data science. I, I know it's growing in other areas and it's playing important parts all over. But data science, the, the, the rise of Python in data science and the rise of Python becoming more popular, those two graphs seem like the same. Absolutely. And you can see the Python community in, in embracing this as well. I mean, I was at, at PyCon in, in Portland, where, where you are this year, and we had two keynotes. Well, there were many keynotes, but Jake Vanderplas and, and Catherine Huff um, seeing, you know, um, such data science luminaries and, and thought leaders being invited to something like, like PyCon to give keynotes more and more is, is really exciting. Yeah. And Jake Vanderplas's keynote especially struck a nerve with me because it really opened my eyes to you know, basically his message was this Python ecosystem is a mosaic and there's many different ways in which people are using Python and basically many different things that Python means to different people. And the way that maybe a web developer working on a large scale web app works is really different than the way a data scientist exploring astronomical data would work. But these are both super valid and reinforcing ways uh, to, to work. And I really liked his message. For sure. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So before we get into uh, pass into data science, let's get your story. How, how did you get into programming in Python? Okay. So at grad school, I'm from Australia. I, I went to University of New South Wales for, for grad school. I did pure math there and I did a bit of MATLAB. I'd done some Maple um, as an undergrad, but all of this was relatively minimal. Uh, when I started my postdoc, I moved away from pure math and and went into more applied math that I'd done as part of, part of my undergrad. I was working in cell biology, in, in fact, in Germany, and I was working in biophysics, so thinking about kind of the physical mechanical principles of how cells grow, reproduce, uh, that that type of stuff. Uh, that sounds really interesting. Uh, it was it was incredible, and I was actually working in an institute of maybe 400 cell biologists and, and, and theorists dedicated. So it wasn't on a university campus. It was an incredible environment. Um, but I was hired ostensibly to do uh, mathematical modeling. 
but the biologists I work with kept on coming and asking me the same questions with respect to data analysis, uh, statistical inference, this type of stuff, which I didn't know a great deal about at the time. But with my quantitative training, I really could pick it up on the fly. And so I started working more on the data analysis uh, and statistical inference in conjunction with the modeling. Of course, to do that in uh, to do that today, uh, you need to be able to program, right? Because data sets are so large. I mean, you can't you can't do it with pen and paper like they they used to. <laughs> so I started learning Python and and R to to do this. Um, I learned online via online courses, um, a lot of web web resources, and in fact, you know, the open source community uh, in Python and R are really embracing. So any any questions I had, I could pick up on on, on the fly. Yeah, that's that's really cool, and I definitely see this this working with scientists or in, in these types of areas, very important. How, how much programming did the biologists do? Like, did they program in MATLAB? Were they just Excel people? Like how much were they kind of taking care of themselves and how much were you solving their like science problems? So the answer then, which this was now, well, seven years ago, I didn't quite realize that. Um, the answer then was MATLAB. Uh, grad students would come to me and say, I need to learn how to do this image analysis uh, in, in MATLAB or how do we uh, estimate these uh, statistical parameters? How do I get the mean out of this, this data set using, using MATLAB? Um, something I saw maybe three or four years ago was a conversion in which more and more students came and started asking to learn Python and, and R. Uh, biology is, is R. Um, a lot of the time, but more and more Python in, in physics and, and R in, in biology. And I think people just started seeing seeing the value. Um, also, I think there's there's a challenge that MATLAB um, is incredible for, for a number of things, but part of their their business means they're embedded in institutions and it's it's really tough for institutions to break away it's it's generational in a lot of ways actually because yeah. you know yeah. the guys at the top who they matlab work, worked for them um in in a number of respects but seeing kind of the resurgence of this this these open source libraries for academic research is really exciting it's super exciting and to be fair uh, you know the world looked really different 25 years ago in scientific computing than it does now like open source was not so much of a thing it was you know your alternative was probably like c plus plus or something right absolutely yeah i mean maybe fortran right but it was yeah, not it. <laughs> they were not great tools so it was a super clear choice to choose matlab but you're right now it's the senior professors that have been doing matlab for 30 years and all their work is in matlab you know there's probably a tendency to just kind of stick with that your your students come on to help you like hey you got to learn matlab because that's where i work right something yeah. like this that's correct but I do think there's some really interesting, you know, growth in, in around sort of trying to displace MATLAB. I mean, there's Sage Math also from Seattle, you know, uh, yeah. similar similar place to where Jake Vanderplas and uh, the eScience Institute is up there. But yeah, I, I think it's it's really powerful to see people coming in, uh, learning Python. I think one of the major advantages that people get is you can take that into general industry when you're done. Like if you go and study applied math, but then you actually don't become a professor, what are you going to do, right? Correct. Well, the knowing Python has a lot more uh, doors that get open for you than knowing MATLAB. Yeah. And you can collaborate with anyone around the world as well. Somebody to, to read and execute your code doesn't require them to have a proprietary license. 
Yeah, that's a really um, good point. I think, you know, the the cost of these proprietary systems like MATLAB or Maple, like you mentioned, are really, they're problematic, right? Like uh, I did some work with Wavelet decompos- decomposition and that yeah. was like a $2,000 add-on <coughs> to MATLAB. I mean, that's a crazy amount of money for one license. Absolutely. Right, that's and probably I- like pip install something now. <laughs> That's right. And I, so I mentioned uh, Katie Huff's keynote at, at PyCon. She, in, in this keynote, did a wonderful thing where she laid out uh, a series of points of what uh, scientific research and scientific methodology has been historically and needs to be, and demonstrated that open source communities actually are far better at all these scientific principles than uh, most other communities that have existed since since the ancient Greeks. So things such as version control, reproducibility, absolutely open uh, code bases, this type of stuff is exactly what science needs now, particularly as, you know, we're all this buzz term reproducibility crisis. It's incredibly important that all, all of our tools and techniques are open. Yeah, that's a really interesting point that open source kind of is very much in the same, has the same zen as principles of scientific research and exploration, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. So that was how you got into Python and programming. How about now? What do you do today? So I work for a startup called DataCamp, and we uh, do online education for, for data science. So we have an in-browser platform, uh, and now we have a mobile app, actually, uh, where people can come and, and, and learn and, and practice and apply data science. Until recently, so I've recently changed uh, positions in in the company. Until recently, I was working on curriculum building. So when I joined the company, we had two Python courses. And uh, over the past year and a half, uh, I've built it out out with colleagues and external instructors to around 30 courses. Um, So that job was really ideation, what courses will look like, high-level view of a curriculum, figuring out what data sets to use in courses, techniques to teach, whether it's scikit-learn, pandas, uh, how to approach these APIs. We've taught them with wonderful people such as Andreas Muller of scikit-learn, great courses with the people at Anaconda, spend my days writing code and explanations for courses, marketing material, being on calls and on GitHub with, in, with instructors, which was was so much fun to work. I think this, you know, I've, I actually did uh, basically the same job, but for a different <laughs> different focus curriculum. But for a long time, I, I was uh, sort of the head of curriculum at a company called Developmentor, which just got acquired and uh, don't do that anymore. But it was it was really fun to sort of look broadly at a technology, think about how do people get started? How do they become experts? What are the important parts? And really try to piece that together as like a jigsaw puzzle. It's it's a fun job. It's super fun. And particularly just trying to match up all those different parts of curriculum building. So just making sure that, you know, five days in a row, I'm not in the weeds of figuring out which data sets to use. So mixing up high level curriculum building with, with, with being in the weeds. Yeah, that's awesome. It's definitely a social side of uh, programming. For sure. And, and now I've transitioned to a job working as a data scientist, a data science advocate and an evangelist for, for, for DataCamp. Um, so I'm doing data science on a daily basis, writing articles about data science for our, our community, pedagogical articles, technical blog posts, topical. So currently uh, I'm writing um, and developing uh, an analysis of the Me Too movement on, on Twitter. So seeing how that has developed using the Twitter API and, and Python and a package called Tweepy. 
Yeah, so doing data science, uh, for example, the Twitter analysis I, I, I just spoke about. I'm also doing data science on, on, on student data to see how we can cluster users and cluster our students and and see uh, best best learning techniques for, for students, whether, for example, a bit of practice on data camp every day uh, um, reinforces learning more than, you know, dedicated long study sessions on, on weekends. Uh, something I'm about to start, which I think would be of great interest to the open source community is, I mean, we have courses on pandas, for, for example, uh, and I'm going to start looking into the data to see if we can check out after a, a student imports pandas and P, as PD, what are the top three mistakes they make straight away? Um, and, and these types of things will be in, of interest to us, to our students, and also to the open source community at, at, at large. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. These ideas of like helping people with that first step, because a lot of times getting into a new technology or a new library, it's those first steps that are the hardest to take. Absolutely. Nice. And you're, are you also doing a, a podcast? Exactly. So I'm currently developing a podcast called, called Data Framed, which is about data science, uh, about what data scientists do on a daily basis. Uh, and about the societal impact of, of data science, which is which is really exciting because I think it can be of great value to our students uh, and it can be a great value to a lot of working data scientists. So, for example, data scientists working at Uber really may have no idea what data scientists working at, at Netflix or data scientists working in, in astronomy do on, on a daily basis because it is um, it's a term that encompasses so much of what working professionals do i i think it's really exciting for me and will be for the community as well yeah i think that's awesome to shine a light on these different areas i mean the the stuff that you're doing at uber like you said is really really different than maybe trying if you're working at say a police department trying to um understand how like police violence or violence against police happens and like these are really really different but maybe there's lessons to be learned from one to be applied to the other absolutely and all the way from that to you know city transit data how you know i live in new york and new york transit has an, a, a huge api the, the mta um where you can go and access data with respect to you know how, how the subway works and how decisions are implemented around around that yeah, that's really interesting. I bet there's some awesome data science stories to be uh, told out of the public transit of these major cities. Absolutely. There's this. Um, there's a blog called iQuantNY, uh, which is all about um, getting getting access to to public New York data and seeing what you can find in it. So that's that's a great blog to check out. Yeah, yeah. There's probably a lot of uh, data science going on there in New York uh, around the stock market as well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no man. Now, of course, they don't share that so much. Yeah. Once you find something that works, they keep that quiet, right? <laughs> That's it. The other thing I've been doing recently is these Facebook Live code along sessions. So I um I'm a huge fan of 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 live coding. I know it's probably slightly masochistic, but I, I don't have a, a huge problem. One of my favorite things about live coding, one of the most valuable moments for me and people coding along is when I make a a mistake that I can't figure out and I need to go on use a search engine and go on Stack Overflow. And people see me kind of figure it out in in, in real time. Um, and actually, I think Jake Vanderplus won up that once though where he was doing a live coding session and found a bug in scikit-learn and went in and issued a PR in the coding session that fixed fixed the bug. And that's that's online somewhere. That but, is um, awesome. <laughs> yeah. But the, the Facebook stuff's great because Facebook's really pushing their, their live... They're live sessions at the moment. Um, so everyone who follows us, we've got now, I think, 
330,000 odd uh, followers on Facebook. When I start a live code along session, they all get notified and a whole bunch of them jump on and interact and it's, it's super fun. And they can comment just below the video. I've got a colleague there who filters the questions and I, I answer some of them and that, that's also a lot of fun. That's a really interesting trend. I, uh, I haven't seen a whole lot of that previously, but I did just talk about on Python Bytes last week this um, this AI framework that you can basically plug your AI into almost any game and then teach it to play that game. And the guy who runs that, um, he actually has a Twitch channel. And some of his Twitch code along, building up these AIs and teaching them to play various games sessions, they're like six hours long. That's and really cool. It, and it's it was really, I'd never really watched one of those. It's really quite interesting, actually. Yeah. It's a whole different world, isn't it? Yeah, it sure is. I mean, a lot of the stuff that's online is really polished or somewhat polished, but it's at least intended to be polished and like packaged up for like, mm. here's a 20 minute little thing. Whereas, you know, those are more like, let's just explore this until we have the answer. That's cool. Yeah, exactly. Nice. All right. So careers into data science, uh, career paths into data science. Let's, uh, let's talk about those. I think we'll, in this conversation, move to maybe more technical, more specifically data science-y material. But the first thing I I, I wanted to state very passionately is that, as with anything, but perhaps more so in data science, be active, be curious, and be part of a community. There are lots of budding data scientists, aspiring data scientists, working data scientists, hiring managers uh, out there, um, and getting in touch with them and putting yourself out there is incredibly important. So to that end, I'd, I'd really suggest starting on some basic data science projects if there's your first foray into it, and we can talk about what that could look like in a second, and create a public profile. Get yourself a GitHub account to, to do that. Maybe have a little blog where every now and then you post some analysis you've done. Um, even if it's a basic exploratory data analysis, uh, that's that's great. And put some words in there, put some images and and figure out uh, h- how to communicate around this. Go to conferences, go to meetups and, and talk to people. Hackathons are also fantastic. Yeah, hackathons, that's definitely a nice way to meet people who are, are you know, more than just sitting next to you uh, at a presentation, but actually, you know, you're kind of working together a little bit. That's cool. Yeah, I, I think I definitely encourage people to create some kind of blog or, or write stuff. I think that that's really valuable. And it doesn't have to be, you don't have to wait until you're an expert for sure at like something. It could be you're solving some problem and you couldn't find a way online how to solve that particular problem. So, you know, blog about that, right? Talk about what you tried, what didn't work. There's a lot of people who would be interested in following along um, this I'm getting started sort of story. Absolutely. And also do a bit of self-promotion or, or marketing. I'm not suggesting like, you know, get your paid ads on, on, on Facebook, but, um, you know, if somebody asks a question on, on Reddit or Quora or Stack Overflow and you think your response may be helpful, get, get out there and, 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 and put it there. There are also a number of blogs that have really wide distribution where you can write write analyses for them as well. I mean, DataCamp, we've got a community section where we, we solicit uh, external contributions. The Open Data Science Conference, ODSC, has a blog where, where they do the same. So once you feel a, a bit more comfortable um, uh, w- with your material, definitely definitely put it out there. And I know that that can be difficult as, as well. 
Um, so there's certainly a, a bit of a loss of ego that needs to, to occur in, in, in this scenario. But just remember, there's a lot of interesting stuff go- going on out there and you can be part of it. Absolutely. And well, I think it's really, really important on how you frame what you've created and presented. If you say, I'm the expert in this thing and then you're not, well, then you know people may find that out and that's going to go badly. But if you're yeah. really upfront, like, look, I'm really just getting started, everyone. But here is something that I couldn't find any help with. And here's what I figured out. And I thought it was awesome. Like, nobody's going to knock you for that, right? Absolutely. Well, yeah. except for maybe on Reddit, they might send something angry. Yeah, at you. But, look, other, <laughs> but you got to have always be at least one troll, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. But you know, it's, it's totally, totally worth it. This portion of Talk Python to Me has been brought to you by Rollbar. One of the frustrating things about being a developer is dealing with errors, Ugh, relying on users to report errors, digging through log files, trying to debug issues, or getting millions of alerts just flooding your inbox and ruining your day. With Rollbar's full-stack error monitoring, you get the context, insight, and control you need to find and fix bugs faster. Adding Rollbar to your Python app is as easy as pip install Rollbar. You can start tracking production errors and deployments in 8 minutes or less. Are you considering self-hosting tools for security or compliance reasons? Then you should really check out Rollbar's compliant SaaS option. Get advanced security features and meet compliance without the hassle of self-hosting, including HIPAA, ISO 27001, Privacy Shield, and more. They'd love to give you a demo. Give Rollbar a try today. Go to talkpython.fm slash rollbar and check them out. The other thing you brought up is a GitHub repo uh, or a GitHub profile, and I think that that's super important. One of the things about GitHub is you can't fake the commit history over time very easily, right? Like if you say, I've been doing this for three years, but your GitHub repo only has like a week of activity, that's not a great sign. So if you're planning this, like, you know, do that stuff early so that it can, you know, sort of create this history that is is proof of what you've been doing. Absolutely. And something I did when I was starting up my, my profile on GitHub, I had a sticker, a sticky, like a literal sticky on my computer screen, not the app stickies, <laughs> but I had a sticky that said commit to GitHub today. Just to make, like, I didn't actually do it every day, but... You can, I, you can actually see before I joined Data Camp that there was a, a lot of public activity I, I, I was doing. Um, one, because I really enjoyed it, but two, because I, I made an active decision to put myself out there. Yeah, it makes a huge, huge difference. So conferences, what are some of the data science conferences that people should go to? I really like the Open Data Science Conference, ODSC, which I mentioned earlier. And in fact, that's where I met the, the Data Camp people. And I had two well three let's say two and a half job offers from going to the going to odsc um i also i also think not only conferences but but meetups are incredibly useful Uh, i know it depends which city you're in but in, in new york there are a lot of interesting meetups a lot of a lot of people go there after work because they love data science and even more so you have hiring managers and recruiters get up literally the organizers at these meetups say at the start or the end hey anyone who has a job stand up and tell us what it is yeah i'd see that definitely in the the python programming meetups as well and i agree that's a great way to get connected with your local people not just people in the industry but you know people down the street right absolutely and the great thing about data science recruiters and data science um people in hr and 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 managers is that there are a significant number of jobs out there. So they're really interested in the conversation. Uh, as someone approaching data science at the moment, um, you are in a relative 
position of power. I mean, it's it is competitive, but compared to the recruiters, they'll be definitely up for a conversation in a way that they wouldn't in in other industries currently. And I had I remember I had a conversation with this great guy from Goldman Sachs where I just asked him up up front, you know, what are what are mistakes that you've had people make in interviews that I should not make? And he gave me lots of great feedback. One one example, he said, if you don't know something just admit you don't know it and say that's that's a gap and I'm looking forward to filling that. He had guys when it was one guy he asked what the bias variance trade off meant and it was on a call and he heard the guy start typing and then answered the question. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, pro tip use a touch pad, a some kind of touch <laughs> device if you're going to Google <laughs> during your interview. Exactly. <laughs> Um, the other oh thing, when you go to conferences and hackathons and this type of stuff, um, conferences are also great because they have, have sprints. Uh, a lot of the big you know, packages, whether it be Scikit-Learn, Pandas, GenSim, uh, Project Jupiter, which we'll talk about um, mm. later on, I think. They have sprints when the conference ends where you can go and help contribute to the project. The communities are super open. Uh, you can start, they actually encourage you to start by just helping out with documentation, which is a huge bottleneck at, at a certain point in, in open source software development. So you can actually be an active member of, of these development communities immediately without being like, oh, I don't, I don't know how to um, you know, define this class correctly. Or Yeah. Well, I think another huge benefit of that is if you do want to have your public profile have... Um, you know, PRs against, say, Pandas or Scikit-Learn or something like that. Th those are mature, polished libraries that are hard to just get into yourself. But if you go to a sprint and sit down with somebody who's an expert and you guys do it together, well, there's a pretty quick way to get up to speed to where that you can start doing those things if you want. Yeah. If that's one of your and, paths you want to follow. And you're right. You're, you're there at these sprints and you're able, you know, best case scenario to be pair programming with core developers on pandas or exactly like it learn or exactly numpy right it's crazy yeah and so when you go to that job interview and they say well how does it really work inside pandas when you do this like which would be better should i do this or that you're like well internally it does this and so here's why you do that like that's an incredible answer and you yeah. could totally get those kinds of insights from these sprints I, I agree absolutely and what that also demonstrates is that you're you're entrepreneurial which which i think you know a lot of people are looking for these days someone who will you know take responsibility and, and and run with it yeah that puts you in a pretty uh pretty thin group already which is great yeah uh you also said that um reading uh blogs and things like that pretty helpful absolutely read as widely as possible i think reading blogs getting on newsletters following people on twitter uh is one of one of my greatest greatest resources. So we've we've chatted about Jake Vanderplas. Uh, on the R side, you have Mara Averick, Hadley Wickham, Hillary Mason's great, Dave Robinson on on the R side. I follow all these people, so you may as well follow me, Hugh, Hugo Bound, because I retweet a, a, a lot <laughs> of this the stuff. important retweets, right? <laughs> as well, um, we're really um, arcing up on the DataCamp community uh, at the moment. As I said, ODSC has a has a fantastic blog. Um, Python Weekly. There are there are so many so many different places, and I'll include uh, a, a significant number of links in, in in the notes to this podcast on on this stuff as well. Yeah, I find that Twitter is super super valuable. I also find Reddit actually, um, if you if you don't mind a few angry comments every now and then. Certainly, the the Reddit community is great and really smart. So you can you know drop in on the data science uh, one or the Python one and pick up a lot there. Yeah. 
Cool. And so this kind of sets the stage for you to be prepared to get a job, to, to make the connections to get a job. But eventually, um, probably most people's goals are to go get some kind of working data science job, right? Yes. So you already brought up recruiters, and I think that's certainly one of the possibilities. Probably the one of the least effective ways to get a job is to just go to the career page and just apply by like filling out the online form. You know, like a, a recruiter can help you get inside. If you have a friend that you know works at that place, ask for an introduction, right? Any, yep. any I think most jobs that are really um, great jobs start the looking for someone to fill it by saying, all right, team, who knows somebody who would be awesome for this job? Anyone? <laughs> and then it That's becomes right. this open search, right? So yeah. how do you get inside this, um, th this first round before it becomes just posted on the career page? I actually think hackathons are, are a, a, a great way to do that because you actually start coding with people there, do a bit of pair programming and you get to get to meet people there. Um, and there are, when there are jobs going around, um, there are a lot of working data scientists from all levels at these at these hackathons. I also think more specific um, online platforms, AngelList. If you if you want to work um, with, with with startups, there's a lot of stuff happening there. Um, and LinkedIn, make your in in North America anyway, making your LinkedIn profile as as attractive as as possible um, will definitely help. And you'll get inbound mail coming as opposed to, uh, needing to go to the apply page. Yeah. And you're in a much better place when people are reaching out to you rather than yeah, the other way absolutely. around for sure. Uh, um, I think that's, that's totally right. Yeah. The other, this is general advice to anyone applying for a job and maybe everyone knows this, but when I heard it a few years ago, it blew my mind. If you're applying for a job and sending a cover letter, use the same font and the same colors as that company's website. How interesting. Yeah, that, yeah, that's pretty easy to do, right? Yeah, exactly. And generally, they love it. We got one recently at Data Camp. We were like, wow, this looks really nice. And then we're like, wait a second. Oh, they've done that. And that when we realized that they'd done that, it was even even stronger. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I did, uh, I was on the receiving end of people applying for jobs for, for quite a while. And to me, when I saw something come in and it was just a standard resume or like here, I'm applying for this job. Here's my info. If it wasn't, I think your company is amazing because, and I want to work with you to do X, like that went straight in the trash. Like if there was not something about the job, the place, the, you know, if it was just like, here's a copy of my word document it was like well here's a copy of my recycle bin next exactly and okay. it's the same when recruiters reach out to you i mean you know you, i get recruiter mail on linkedin which is like your skill set matches our company and i'm like come on right yeah exactly it's not even hey you, you've done this cool stuff in python and whatever it may be but this actually speaks to to something else which is making it particular to the company and also making it particular to yourself so being yourself uh, mm. when doing data science or trying to build your portfolio uh is incredibly important. I think playing to your own strengths, a lot of aspiring data scientists feel they need to be a data science unicorn so that they can, you know, they can do the data munging, data collection, data manipulation, machine learning, statistical inference, Bayesian methods, data visualization, data, you know, like this is crazy, right? And when you're trying to teach people data science and they feel that 
that's that's totally overwhelming. I'm actually overwhelmed by that that sentence I just just stated. <laughs> so, sounds like a PhD in math plus programming, yeah, system, right? <laughs> exactly right. And you don't need to be an expert at machine learning algorithms, for example, to be an effective data scientist. That will make you some sort of effective data scientist. But playing to your own strengths and realizing that data scientists work in teams. So I've I've worked on a course recently with um an educator and data scientist, Sergey Fogelson, who he manages a four person data science team at Viacom here at, here at Times Square. Mm. And on his, I was chatting with him about his team and he said if everyone he hired like knew the ins and outs of support vector machines, that would be a horrible team. He's got one person who is great at statistical data visualization. He has one person who's a data engineer and fantastic at that. He has one person who does the machine learning stuff and also has a background in uh, math and physics so can actually explain the ins and outs of these algorithms to, to the rest of the team. Um, I actually forget what the fourth fourth person does, but that, that speaks to the fact that managers are aware that when they hire in teams, they're gonna hire people with, with different strengths. And for yeah. that reason, I'd suggest to anyone entering data science to do things that interest you. Have a play around, like when developing your portfolio, you'll see you've got to do different steps in the data science pipeline, figure out what you enjoy the most, and then apply for those jobs as, as well. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And I think one of the underlying things you're touching on here is authenticity. Because yes. if you feel like someone is reaching out to you and they're being super authentic, like you said earlier about that, well, you know, I honestly have no idea what that term means, but I, I'm super excited to learn it if it's important. Like I would love, like I'm not against, you know, I'm not against it. I just don't know every single little detail about this. I think when people are hiring, if you see the enthusiasm, you see some real problem solving skills and, and some authenticity, it really goes a long ways. Yeah. And being able to, to adapt, pivot and, and learn as well. So being able to say, hey, this is what I've learned in the past year. I have no idea what that means, uh, Mrs. Hiring Manager, but um, I'm willing to learn that is incredibly important in, in this space because in all honesty, in, in five years, it might not be Python with the, you know, Julia may, may come up, R may, may really, really blast in again. Um, so the ability to, to learn and, and, and relearn, I think, is incredibly important and demonstrating that. Yeah, absolutely. Because at a minimum, you have to learn the details and the ins out of like that actual problem set and that industry that maybe exactly. you don't have. So another thing you touched on was uh, do what interests you, because then you have the enthusiasm and that really is, is super powerful as well. And I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, combining what you're interested in or what you have expertise in plus programming plus data science. And I think it really gives you like this superpower. Like you talked about this cell biology project that you had, like they were probably like, you know, go to Hugo. He can solve the problem because he both yeah. owns, he, can, he controls the magic of programming and he can do this biology stuff. And so there's this, this really unique set of skills. Like you don't, you don't go from like a million data scientists and how do you differentiate yourself from them? You're like, I'm, I'm the data scientist that also understands wind power, like nobody else. So if I'm trying to apply to like a renewable energy company, like, well, that's a clear win, right? For sure. And I, I, I definitely think you've got to be doing something you're interested in. Uh, I think a lot of people may say, I'm going to do a Kaggle competition because that's what people do. I think Kaggle, Kaggle competitions are great, but choose one that you're super interested in. If, if you're interested in flight patterns in North America, 
do a Kaggle competition about, you know, how often flights are delayed, which airlines, which cities, that type of stuff. If you're a movie buff, jump into the movie lens data set and try to develop a basic recommender systems, uh, recommendation systems engine. Um, if you're into Yelp reviews, um, if, okay, if, if you hate Yelp reviews that don't give you enough information, try to learn a bit of natural language processing or natural language understanding by segmenting or, or filtering or clustering these, these Yelp reviews. So doing things that interest you um, is incredibly powerful when developing your data science portfolio. But also it makes sense, right, in the sense that if someone's talking to you about something that they don't really care about, you're not that affected. Whereas we've all, we all love listening to people who are passionate about something, right? So that's, that's very powerful. Um, another approach, I actually had this conversation with, uh, a data scientist and statistician, um, in the R ecosystem, uh, Mina Chetunkaya Rundle. I'm sorry if I got that pronunciation wrong, but we were discussing this and she said, yeah, do stuff that interests you or stuff that you have to do. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, let's say you're doing, you're trying to learn data science and you're doing your budgets, your monthly family budgets in Excel. Try to do that in R. Try to develop a minimal dashboard or in Python uh, and, and see how that goes. If you wear a Fitbit, you know, get your Fitbit data out of CSVs and, and have a look at your own sleeping patterns and, and your own heart rate data and accelerometer data and, and that type of stuff. Uh, and, and write something on, on your blog or on GitHub about that. Right. I think even, you know, companies get created out of those types uh, of activities, right? You're like, you know, I really wish I could do this thing better for myself. And you're like, wait a minute, this seems like everybody must have this problem. And this is a cool solution. What can I do with that? Right? Exactly. This portion of Talk Python to Me was brought to you by GoCD. GoCD is an on-premise, open-source, continuous delivery tool to help you get better visibility into and control of your team's deployments. With GoCD's comprehensive pipeline modeling, you can model complex workflows for multiple teams with ease. And GoCD's value stream map lets you track changes from commit to deploy at a glance. Say goodbye to deployment panic and hello to consistent, predictable deliveries. We all know that continuous integration is super important to the code quality of your applications. Choose the open source local CI server, GoCD. Learn more at talkpython.fm slash gocd. That's talkpython.fm slash gocd. I love that you spoke to this idea of creating superpowers by uh, combining two or more areas of expertise, because I think that will also help differentiate you. You know, a lot of people are out there trying to get data science jobs, but if you're data science plus, you differentiate yourself from everyone else who's speaking about data science. So if you're interested in data science plus analyzing genomic data or data science plus analyzing, as we discussed, Yelp reviews, that that type of stuff um, will help differentiate you from the masses. Yeah, absolutely. I, if I was on the hiring side and I saw this is a person who is a proper data scientist, but they also know my industry, like that goes right at to the top. <laughs> That's great. Exactly. So let's talk about programming skills a little bit. Like, Love to. Um, yeah. So I'm familiar with the programming skills you need to be a web developer, but how about data scientists? Like what, what do you think people should really focus on there? Currently, I would learn at least one technology really well by applying it to projects, the types of projects we've just discussed. Uh, I think the two most applicable technologies right now are Python and, and R. So if you learn one of them really well by applying it to projects, I'm not necessarily going and saying going and learning all the in, ins and outs of object-oriented programming in, in, in Python, but the type of stuff you pick up when 
doing a project of, you know, analyzing social media trends using Twitter. You'll, you'll gain so much knowledge doing that. I'd also suggest learning a bit about others to be able to speak the language. So if you choose Python, I'd then learn a, a bit of R and not necessarily as, as much as you know, know in Python, but being able to speak that language will really help you in, in whatever roles you, you, you enter in the future. Yeah, certainly having these multiple languages as your skill set, you understand like, well, maybe over in R, there's this really cool way to do this one thing that's not so easy in Python. Yeah. And that can help you think of different ways to solve the problem, or maybe it's just not so obvious in Python how to do it, right? So that can definitely open your mind to like different avenues of, of solving these problems. And you maybe can grab a library that's important over there, port it over to Python and use it if you'd rather, right? For sure. And I think one great example of this is, um, so I use Python uh, substantially more than I use R these days. One case in which maybe I'll jump into R is doing some, you know, very basic exploratory data analysis and, and, and filtering and, and, and that type of stuff. Because all these new tidyverse tools uh, developed by Hadley Wickham, among, among other people, are incredibly useful uh, for kind of rapid iteration of exploratory data, data analysis, in a way that uh, the, the more Pythonic tools perhaps are not. Sure. Yeah, that, that's a good example. So what do you think about, I'm not sure what the proper way to say it, like sort of software engineering type of skills, like refactoring, design patterns, um, those kinds of ideas, like how important is that kind of stuff yeah. versus a uh, good exploratory, just, we're just going to find the answer. We're just going to like rummage through this data type of programming. That, that's an incredibly important question that I don't have a concrete answer to yet, but I, I think what people need to do is, I mean, you, you don't want to go down the hole of becoming a developer, you're trying to do a, a data science. I didn't actually mean it's a hole that you enter when you're becoming a developer, but you don't want to go down the hole of, you know, developing uh, software engineering best practices and only focusing on that. But you do need basic programming best practices. So the first things are, you know, having a style guide, Python, Pep8, all the way, um, commenting your code, using version control, um, have a workflow. And maybe you don't have this at the very start, but do exploratory data analysis and write exploratory code uh, while it's working for you. But when you start tripping over it, when it starts to become more inefficient, then perhaps start to refactor your code. Have, have some, um, you know, put your functions in, in, in modules, in .py files, for example. Um, have an editor that you use or notebooks. Yeah. Uh, well, one of the areas that I see that this kind of stuff becomes really important is people can do super important work, especially if they're coming more from the science side towards the programming rather from the software side towards the, the data is they're really good at writing scripts that will answer their problem, but they're not super reusable, right? They're kind of just like, it goes through the steps that I need to solve my problem rather than here's a thing I could make an open source project. And imagine if pandas was just crammed inside of some other application in a way that wasn't able to become this amazing thing, right? Exactly. And that's, that's a huge bottleneck for, for working scientists. I mean, the, the type of code I, I saw, I don't want to be too hard on, on, on the biologists, but the type of code I, I, I saw was really like we had to go, go through it in serious detail to figure out what was, what was happening in there, even when it was, was published. Um, and of course, remember that you're writing code for other people to read, but more importantly, you're writing code for future you to, to read. Yes. <laughs> so be, be good on future you. 
Yeah, I always, I often have this thought of like, if I do this, my future self will thank me in programming, but also just in like making coffee before I go to bed, right? Yeah, totally. Get it ready to press the button. That's it. And I also nice. think there are a few other technologies which we've, we've spoken to in, in, in some sense. Git is incredibly useful. Um, it, there can be a, a slightly steep learning curve before you see, see the value there. But I do think um, version control is, is incredibly necessary for, for data science moving, moving forward. Learning Bash, a bit of shell, uh, is is really useful. If you're in a job and you need to spin up an, an AWS instance, you'll need to know a, a bit of that stuff. Um, I don't necessarily, you know, say spend spend weeks or months using it. Uh, and I know all of this can can be quite overwhelming, all these different tools. But if you know a bit of each, um, you'll, you'll be in good stead for for getting into data science. Yeah, what's worked for me a lot in these things is like, it's not like, well, I wanna know Bash and Linux, so I'm just gonna like study them to death. It's like, I have this problem I need to solve with Linux. <laughs> Let me learn enough to make that problem, to solve that problem. And then you just keep doing this, like you build up enough to like, kind of hit most of the important areas anyway. Exactly, and once again, you're speaking to doing projects, right? Like having yeah. some particular project, which you can do and learn tools around it. and. As we've discussed, putting that on on your blog, having you know a blog post, how I use Linux to solve this this part of this problem, and if someone asks you about it, you can say, yeah, I I know this and that about it, and you can check out more content on on my blog. I think that's that's incredibly useful, or on my yeah. GitHub, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's super important. Um, so we talked about the programming stuff, kind of low level. What are the the core skills? I mean, do I need to go and do I need a math degree to be a data scientist? Do I need to be a scientist, a programmer? Like, what are the core skills? So you, you definitely don't need a math degree to be an effective data scientist. I do think, though, if you learn a bit along the way, let's say you're, you're totally not into matrices and linear algebra and all of that jazz. Um, that's cool. But if you do learn a bit along the way and try to not be scared of it, you know, you'll become probably a bit a bit more effective. So I'd suggest you to try and ease yourself in, in into that stuff. Uh, but the more important initial skills are data, being able to explore data, being able to read in a data set using pandas, for example, or data table in 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 R, uh, and check it out. Um, look at some figures. Look at some sum, compute some summary statistics. That type of stuff. Very related to this is data cleaning and data manipulation. Uh, anyone who's you know, there's the saying that 80% of my job is is cleaning data and manipulating it. Um, and it's a joke because it's more like 95% of most people's jobs. And I think this is in, in incredibly important. Um, statistics, I think, is really uh, essential in in data science, but I need to be careful there because when I say statistics, I don't mean the central limit theorem. I'm talking about applied statistics or practical statistics. And actually, when I was wrapping up my postdoc, I was asked the same question so many times by, by students that I started running workshops in R and Python called an introduction to practical statistics, where we'd take their data sets and see how we can find out stuff in them from, from, from Python and R. So what I'm talking about there is, you know, how to compute the mean, standard deviation, how to do basic statistical modeling, fitting uh, polynomials, that that type of stuff. Right. And answering, do, is this a uh, trend? You know, are these correlated or not? Things like that, right? Exactly. And thinking about how then that translates in to my initial question as well. It's not 
It's not only, you know, does this look linear? It's what are the implications of this? What can I tell to someone who doesn't know something about the Pearson correlation coefficient? How can I explain this in, in, in human terms to a manager, for example? Bootstrapping is an incredibly useful technique in, in statistics that I think everyone should know. I might try to explain very briefly what, what bootstrapping is. Yeah, yeah, um, go for it, because I'm not entirely sure what it is myself. So, and, and it means something different in the world you're from as well, I think. <laughs> Um, yes, I mean, there's two meanings of bootstrap that I know of already. Neither yeah. of them are what I'm thinking of. So I don't about, think what you're thinking of. Think about this. You've got some data set, people's heights in a, in a certain population, and you have the average. So this is the average height of this, this data set. But you know that, let's say you only have 10 data points or 20 data points. You know that this won't actually be the average height of the entire population, right? Um, so what you do is, so the, the average height you've got has some sort of error bars associated with it. Um, and what you want to do is estimate those, those error bars. And so what you do is you resample from the sample you have. So if you have 20 data points, you can resample 20 with replacement to get a slightly different average. You can do that a hundred, a thousand times, and then you get some sort of distribution of potential means or potential averages. So that will tell you, that's the bootstrap of the average. That will tell you kind of the spread of possible averages in, in, in the total population. But the great thing is that this isn't just, um, this doesn't just apply to averages or means. You know, you can do this with any statistic under certain certain scenarios. And it gives you a pretty good idea of what, what, what you're looking at statistically. That's really cool. It's like meta statistics, like statistics about yeah. statistics. Exactly. <laughs> Um, and the great thing is once you have that distribution of means, you can visualize it, right? So you get a distribution, you can have a look at it, and that speaks to the next core skill that I think everyone, uh, if you're not going to be a specialist in data visualization, that's fine. But as a working data scientist, you'll be asked time and time again to explain your results. And a picture is worth a thousand lines of code. So I think that's, that's incredibly important to become adept at, at, at data visualization. Um, I think the, the, fifth, the fifth point which is a term on everyone's tongue, is machine learning, the related deep learning. I think machine learning is incredibly important um, for working data scientists, but I don't want aspiring data scientists or software engineers who are trying to enter the data science space to fall into the trap of thinking, if I can, if I can machine learn in inverted commas, um, you know, that makes me a, a, a data scientist. And I'd, I'd suggest that definitely learn a bit about deep learning, but don't get sucked in or too sucked in unless you want that to be your focus and then really do it, right? Yeah, it's definitely one of the most mysterious and sort of uh, new buzzy parts uh, of data science. Exactly. But, and the way it's related to this, you know, kind of reburgeoning concept of artificial intelligence is fascinating, but it's, you know, there's also... A potential for for a bubble. I don't want to be too 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 harsh on it because it's incredibly important, and the effects on you know on on society and the way we live will be will be huge. But we need to be careful as well. Yeah, well, I think the probably the the danger is that it can it can become the hammer where everything becomes a nail to hit it with. There was this funny image I retweeted on Twitter yesterday. I don't know where it came from originally, but there's this huge bulldozer thing. Instead of having like a big scoop on the end of its arm, it had like a little regular person-sized shovel and it was like digging with it and the quote was something okay. like you know machine learning solution when all you really needed was a few if statements it's something like that that's fantastic <laughs> yeah and I, I've, I do see that possibly being a danger right it's not the only way to solve problems but the problems that they can solve are like they were unsolvable before so it really does have the right. possibility to open new doors 
All right, but it's not the only only tool for it. Yeah, I mean, you know, the pendulum swings both ways, and part of the reason it's really buzzy now is because it has been incredibly effective, as we've seen. Yeah, and these companies are saying, "Hey, we have tons of data, and we don't fully understand it. Could this maybe be our magic silver bullet to unlock something we didn't know about?" Yeah, and also you said story, yeah, storytelling, right? Storytelling is incredibly important, and I think. You know, even when you're writing a chunk of code, you're telling a story to future you or someone else who's who's reading it and trying to interpret it. But when developing a, a, a data science project, you're introducing them to a data set, uh, you're showing them exploratory data analysis, you're potentially showing them some statistical inference, machine learning pipelines. So being able to explain uh, in, a, in a variety of terms what your data science story is, is incredibly important. And to give takeaways at the end, to give an introduction, this this type of stuff. So considering it a story and also thinking who your, who your target audience is. If you wanna, you know, write a blog post which a hiring manager can, can, can understand, that's one thing. But if you wanna uh, write a blog post who's someone who's, you know, very well-versed in machine learning can understand, they're, they're very different things. So just kind of think about that, practice that, and and read what other people what other people do as well. Um, there's a website I can't remember what it is, but it's it's called something like, you know, a hundred interesting Jupyter notebooks in 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 data science. Or yeah, something I think I've like seen that. that. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah, that that definitely um, is a great place. And I think Jupyter notebooks yeah. really are powerful, and they they've brought storytelling to code in a way that just wasn't there before. Absolutely, and the idea of being able to interactively write your code and see output straight away below the cell you've written in is is really strong. And this was actually one of Jake Vanderplus's points, right, in his PyCon keynote where, you know, someone said to him, oh, I can't believe you use Jupiter. It's so slow and, 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 and beefy. And he was like, oh, I never thought about that. But that doesn't affect my, my workflow. It's really about, you know, um, speed of speed of development for me, not not speed of execution, I think was his was his term and that he can he can go in there. Um, and we all can write some code, see the output, get some cool visualizations, move on, write some markdown in there in order to have have some text and tell that story. Now, one of the greatest things, of course, now is that it has been for some time that GitHub renders Jupyter Notebooks as well. So you can just give someone a link to your Jupyter Notebook on, on, on GitHub and, and they can go and check it out immediately without even needing to clone the repository. Oh, I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. yeah very yeah. cool. So I, I guess we're kind of getting near the end. Probably we've got to wrap it up a bit, but one of the final things we should focus on is, you know, it's it's a time of unparalleled information and learning resources. I mean, 20 years ago, it was get a book or get a degree. There's a whole lot more than that now, right? Absolutely. So you guys at Data Camp already have, you have a ton of courses on for data scientists. Yeah, so I definitely think one way to keep up to date with what's happening in the field is is online education. And there are lots of lots of platforms for this which which offer offer different things. So I think Coursera and, and edX, you know, open the world of online education, not only in data science and, and, and programming, but everything from, you know, the humanities to space exploration yeah. to politics, you know, and it's an incredible platform. Um oh sorry, both of both of them are. Yeah. Uh, what we do at Data Camp is we're we're building uh, a, a vertical platform for people to learn data science. And what we offer really, one of our major value propositions is it's it's more personalized in, in the sense that you get uh, a shell and you get to write a script um, in, in the course and you get automated personalized feedback. So let's say I try to 
import pandas and then read in a CSV, but I pass the wrong argument to it or the wrong separator or something like that. Datacamp will say, hey, you passed in this argument. Why don't you try doing this in, instead in order to in, in, uh, in, import it, uh, read, read the CSV correctly. So we have a mixture of videos and interactive coding sessions. Uh, there are lots of other great places. Kevin Markham um, has his data school, which is great for Pythonic data science. Yeah, Kevin Markham. Yeah, Kevin Markham is doing really awesome stuff. Shout out to Kevin. I was just talking to him yesterday, actually, and he and I have done a little bit together. And he's he's got some really cool stuff for data science yeah. uh, and Python for sure. Absolutely, and and of course your courses, your Talk Python courses for for Pure Python. Everyone should do that. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the the shout out. That's awesome. Of course. All right. Well, you know, hopefully people who are getting started in data science or the programmers they want to move into data science, hopefully this has been really helpful. I think there's a, a pretty concrete roadmap of steps that you can take to, to get there. So thanks for laying that out for us. Absolutely. And thanks for coming up with this idea for us to have this have this chat as well. Yeah, it's, it's been really cool. Yeah, it's super fun. I think it's everyone's going to enjoy it, I think. All right. So before I let you get out of here, though, you've got two questions to answer. First of all, if you're going to write some code, what namely Python code, really, what editor do you open up? When I use an editor, which I do for scripting, I'll use Atom. Uh, but as we've said, for most data science, I, I do it in Jupyter Notebooks. I love Jupyter Notebooks. Also, I'd, I'd recommend very soon, or even now, people checking out Jupyter Lab. I don't know uh, Jupyter Lab. Tell us about it. Oh, Jupyter Lab's amazing. It's uh, it's really a modular infrastructure for data science and scientific computing. So you open up uh, your Jupyter Lab kernel and you can have a Jupyter notebook in there. You can have a terminal in there. You can have a markdown file, which you see rendered uh, immediately. You can even have notebooks. You and I can open Jupyter notebooks in our respective Jupyter Lab environments and collaborate on them in real time. And you can paste code into the chat that then I can paste into my notebook. So it's really kind of a new modular infrastructure. That's awesome. It's like so social Jupiter. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds great. So that's that's super exciting. And the development around that is is really is really strong. Nice. Okay, so uh, notable PyPI package. Okay, so there are so many. Um, this it's is so hard. There's yeah, like yeah. 120,000 almost now. It's insane. I actually, I'll mention one that I that I recently discovered and I've only played around with, but it seems super cool. It's called Newspaper, and I've been thinking about it a bit recently. I spent a lot of my time trying to scrape HTML um, and and prettify it. So, and for that, I use generally I use requests and, and Beautiful Soup, which those those are huge. But that isn't the, those aren't the ones I'm talking about at the moment. This is called Newspaper, and it, it's a really simple API for scraping art, articles and curating them and doing natural language processing. So you can you know get in touch with the New York Times or whatever it may be, scrape the article really easily. There are some natural language processing methods, title methods, text methods, that type of stuff where it'll, you know, I think it, the method, I probably won't get this right, but it's something like NLP method and it spits out keywords and topics and, and, and that type of stuff. So I've only played around yeah, with it's, it. Yeah, it's an incredible library. Yeah, I just discovered it recently as well. And basically the idea is, Instead of combining requests plus beautiful soup, and then you have to you get the text and the semantic markup, and you got to do whatever you're going to do. It's like you can just point it at an article and say, "Who was the author? When was this published? Exactly. What are the keywords?" And you can point it at the homepage, like uh, the homepage of the New York Times, and say, "What are the articles on this page?" It's crazy. It's awesome, and it deals with yeah. date times in a really intuitive, nice way, which 
date times that are the bane of my existence a lot of the time. <laughs> Why so, are date times so hard? Uh, they are, though. It really is ter- so tricky. I think James Glyke has this thing where <laughs> it's an article about um, how we sh- there should just be one time zone. I'm, I'm not going to go into that, but I'm just putting that out there. It's it's not obvious who would be the center of the, that time zone, but yeah, that's a big debate there, right? But I, I I wake up at two in the afternoon and then I get up right, like that would totally simplify things. His argument is that time zones are a historical artifact that we need to get rid of. Um, but that's my notable uh, PyPI package. I just wanted to give a few shout outs to a bunch of others from the data science Python stack. And this is list is by no means exhaustive, but I use Pandas, Scikit-Learn, NumPy is huge. Matplotlib, Seaborn, Altair, and Bokeh are all great for data viz. Dask for distributed computing, PyMC3, stats models. These are all really interesting and core elements of the data science Python stack that that I use and love. Yeah, those are all all very, very good ones. So awesome. Yeah, newspaper, lots of fun with that one. Yeah. All right. So Hugo, final call to action. People, they want to get into data science. What do you say? Get out there and do things. Play to your own strengths. Be brave. And something we haven't really chatted about, realize that imposter syndrome is a real thing for everybody. So at the inaugural JupyterCon this year, Fernando Perez, the creator of IPython, for real, the creator of IPython and co-lead of Project Jupiter, encouraged everyone to realize that everyone has imposter syndrome and that he himself has imposter syndrome. So anytime you think you're an imposter, Remember that Fernando Perez feels feels the same way. He's out there changing the world, and so can you, right? Exactly. Awesome. That's it. All right. Well, great to talk with you, and thanks for coming on the show. Such a pleasure. Thank you. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Today's guest has been Hugo Brown Anderson, and this episode has been brought to you by Rollbar and GoCD. Rollbar takes the pain out of errors. They give you the context and insight you need to quickly locate and fix errors that might have gone unnoticed until your users complain, of course. As Talk Python to Me listeners, track a ridiculous number of errors for free at rollbar.com slash talkpython to me. GoCD is the on-premise open source continuous delivery server. Want to improve your deployment workflow but keep your code and builds in-house? Check out GoCD at talkpython.fm slash gocd and take control over your process. Are you or a colleague trying to learn Python? Have you tried books and videos that just left you bored by covering topics point by point? Well, check out my online course, Python Jumpstart by Building 10 Apps at talkpython.fm course to experience a more engaging way to learn Python. And if you're looking for something a little more advanced, try my Write Pythonic Code course at talkpython.fm pythonic. Be sure to subscribe to the show. Open your favorite podcatcher and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, Google Play feed at slash play, and direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code. (laughs) 